Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And I find there's something otherworldly about being able to go there and kneel down on it or put your hand on it and know that you're, you're occupying the same space of the universe. The same tiny space in the vast universe that was once inhabited through the gossamer thin curtain of time. It was inhabited by Columba. In this podcast, we're travelling to a place like no other A magical island where the landscape, the light and the very air you breathe all come together to cradle and captivate you. Steeped in ancient history, long lost in time. Now famous as the place where some of the earliest Christian evangelists came to keep their faith alive. But regardless of who you are or what you believe, it's a place with the power to make you special. A place whose rocks, sea and the sky above are simply good for the soul. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week, we travelled with you to Kent and set foot in a grand Roman villa decorated with incredible mosaic floors and wall paintings. Where are we now? This one this week, uh, it's a place that takes, well, a bit of getting to, put it that way. Uh, Sailing from the west coast of Scotland, you have to hop from one island and then on to another, but it's worth it. The place we're talking about is home to vital history and breathtaking beauty. It's the island of Iona. When you'd start talking about things like the British Isles and, and, and talking about how much how much time you've spent travelling round it, as I have, it, inevitably when people come up to say hello, they, they, they almost invariably ask, where should we visit? You know, and what? And in fact, what's the best place, or what's your favourite? And it's impossible because on different days you have different answers to the question, really. But my most consistent answer is Iona. It's the most unforgettable to me. It just seems to 
it, all in its own, it seems to encapsulate what it is that I'm trying to say about the value of certain places in the landscape, why I think certain places are sacred, why I think certain places uh, are good for the spirit, uh, and why I think it's obvious that certain places have mattered to our species for a very, very long time. Iona does it all in all in one. It's all there. So it has the history and it has the landscape to go with it. It has. I mean, if people if people have have heard of Iona, they'll consider it to be a holy island associated with Christianity, which it is. Of course, it is, and that's why a lot of people go there. And there's a, a there's an abbey there to this day, uh, and and people visit out of a, a sense of Christian pilgrimage. But it's also, I would say, a place that is. That what makes it special is much, much older than Christianity. It, it's been embellished and, and the story has been enriched and added to by the presence of, of the Christian story there, without a doubt. But you, can, you just get a sense that the place is uh, of a, a kind of spiritual transcendent significance, whether you're Christian or whether you consider yourself to be a religious person or not. It's it's something I've always maintained. It's just something to do with the the way every, all the natural ingredients come together, the air, the quality of the light, which is obviously variable. It's not like it's constant. You know, you get, you go there in all weathers. Uh, there's something about the at certain times when the sun's on it. You know, the 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 water is sometimes sometimes blue. Sometimes it's as dark red as port. Uh, the, the sands on on the on the little beaches can be as white as talcum powder. The rocks are kind of pink, pinky granite. And in some way, all of these natural in- natural ingredients just seem to come together uh, to make something perfect. It's just a lovely place. I can't put it any more simply. So it's that landscape that hooks you in. Oh yeah, for me, and I'm sure if you spoke to many people that have visited Iona, they would say the same. It's tiny as well. You walk round it in a day. It's just a dot. Uh, it's off the west coast of the larger island of Mull, M-U-L-L, which is itself off the west coast of Scotland. But it's just a little scrap of a place on the edge of somewhere that's already on the edge. You know, so we talked before about the Aran Islands in uh, off the west coast of Ireland. Well, there's something similar, but quite different and unique. But 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 some of the some of the same sense of being on the edge is there in in Iona. But it's different. Uh, it, there's also a, there's a there's a there's a sense when you're on Iona of somewhere that that's quite remote. But you also feel cradled. The Aran Islands have something of a sense of real exposure. But on on Iona, there's more of a sense of being held in something's cupped hands. It, it feels like a, a cradle. Uh, it, it feels actually, if you want to get carried away with it, and you know I'm quite happy to allow myself to get carried away with these things. It it feels like the centre of somewhere. You know how this, you know you would say quite correctly that there's no such thing as the centre point of the surface of a sphere, or like the universe. You know there's no such place is the centre of the infinite universe but, but there's something where you feel I feel when you're on Iona that you're at the, you're at the heart of something maybe it's heart is, is, is a better word to describe it rather than centre 
you know, heart has other connotations, maybe it's that. But it's just, it, it wraps up all in one go what it is that I seek to try and express with this love letter to the British Isles. That as well as the places that, are, that have been made special by things that we as a species have done there, or events that have unfolded in certain places that make them unforgettable, there are also places that are just special just because. <laughs> to use that childish, semi-meaningless experience, why is Iona special? Just because. It just is. How do you get to Iona? You go to uh, Oban and you catch a, you know, a Caledonian McBrain ferry across to... It's quite a short crossing, really. And you land on... Uh, you land at Mull, at Craig Newer. And you, and you drive across in, a, in your car or in a hire car to the other side of, of Mull, to a place called Fiona Fort. And you have to leave your car there uh, because the next wee ferry is just a passenger ferry. So you park up and you jump aboard a little... And you can see Iona at that point across the sound. And so, so that when you arrive on the other side, you're on foot. Cause it's, and you don't need a... You know, heaven forbid, you wouldn't want to take a car onto Iona. Anyway, it's, it's too small. What's it like when you first arrive? First of all, Iona has about an air of mystery. Even though you know where it is, there's something of the mysterious about it because it's kind of hiding behind Mull. So even, even when you get to Mull, it's still hiding. And also, probably more significantly, from wherever you are in the world, even in Scotland, to go to Iona takes a bit of effort for anyone because you're going to catch two ferries and you're going to do a bit of driving on, on, a, on a good, you know, windy road with, with, that's narrow with passing places and all the rest of it. So you've got to put a bit of effort in. And that's part of what makes it really satisfying to go to because you've really got to mean it. You don't really stumble onto Iona without trying to go there. You've got to make some plans. And Mull is very different in atmosphere. It's a lovely island. You, you land at um, Tobermory, uh, which is the place with all the multicoloured painted houses. And it, ins it inspired Balamori, which lots of people will have seen on television. It was a toddler's TV show. So, but Mull, as you drive across it to get to... Uh, Fianna Fort, it they're quite, can be quite imposing. It can be quite, um, uh, you know, over overwhelming, oppressive almost. If the, if the lights right or wrong, but then when you get to Fianna Fort and then you get on the boat and water and you arrive on Iona, there's a palpable sense of having of of being able to stand up straight again, like putting your head out through the sunroof of a car. You suddenly get a sense of the of the enormity of the sky above you and you feel inclined to take a deep breath. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's one of those places that I feel, I can feel the, the knots in my rope being untied. You know, you go through daily life and, and the round of the year, um, and you can feel yourself getting more and more wound up by anxieties and just the stresses of daily life until you feel as if you're like a knotted rope. Well, for me, Iona is one of those places that as soon as I arrive, I can feel the tension loosening and the knots just unravelling themselves. And you look around and you take a breath of air that, you know, you don't seem to smell fresher air anywhere on planet Earth than on Iona. And, and whatever the light is doing, whether it's a wintry day or a summer's day or whatever, uh, it just, it just 
does something positive for the human spirit, or it does for mine. And I've spoken to enough people over the years about Iona, people who love the outdoors, or people who love the Scottish landscape, or, or people who love islands. All manner of people will say that Iona's just one of the best. think it's part of that cradling and comforting sense that it gives you? It's probably a million things and one thing. You know, it's probably a million different ingredients and then, you know, one thing important that you bring yourself uh, about the whole affair. But of course, it's, it's associated more than with anything else with the story of early Christianity in, in Scotland. Uh, there's just no getting away, f- away from that. And it's also absolutely true to say that our civilization, our society in West in the West has been shaped more than by anything else, by the Judeo-Christian tradition. You know, our rules, our laws, our 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 sense of what it is to be a civilization, it's the deepest foundations really are are, are those of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's worth knowing that it, as well that it was in places like Iona that early Christianity clung on through a period, a century really, where it nearly disappeared. You know, Christianity wasn't always the presence on the planet that it has been. There was a time when it was fragile and, and vulnerable to other other challengers, especially the older pagan traditions, you know, that, that were deeply embedded all over, and, and certainly in Britain. So Christianity had an uphill had an uphill s- struggle to begin with. It's difficult to get the modern mind around the idea that paganism was sort of the established church. Christianity is this new kid on the block trying to get a foothold. Yeah, I mean, of course, p- pagan traditions, uh, it's not really even a church, is it? it it's more a, a, and it was so variable. You know, it was a belief in a, a, a pantheon of, of gods and spirits, some of which were thought to be in the sky, some of which were thought to be in the water, even in the trees. And, and in the world around, uh, and there were all sorts of, of practices, you know, in, including sacrifice, that were associated with those beliefs, and they were they were certainly uh, preeminent in the in the Roman Empire, uh, but all over, you know, these were the, the there were pagan traditions that were much much older, and it's impossible really to say where how deep their roots actually go, and and Christianity came out of the Eastern Mediterranean, obviously the Holy Land, the, the Middle East like Judaism, like Islam, they all come out of that, that same boiling <laughs> boiling pot of religious strife. Uh, and, you know, Christianity was no different and certainly came from there. In the early centuries, it stayed put. But then there was a, there was a tradition, there were traditions that grew, including uh, the monastic ideal, which meant that rather than being in amongst the rest of the press of humanity, there was a desire by some of the early church figures to get out into the desert, metaphorically speaking, if not literally, and to put distance between themselves and the irreligious. And within that, there was also, of course, the notion that that Christianity was to be taken to the ends of the earth. You know, the message of the Gospels, the message of Jesus Christ, was that, that this message of salvation was to be taken to everyone everywhere, so that so that Christian messengers had to go everywhere 
no matter how far, no matter how distant they had an obligation to go there. And so in the early centuries, messengers bringing the faith started to move into Europe. Uh, and the, the, one of the first places that they established a, a foothold was in Marseille, which is the port in, in southern France, in the, in the western Mediterranean. And then up from there, up through mainland France, they came to Tours, uh, and, they, and they were you know, present there. But at all, at all times, the religion was challenged by the older paganism and by people who just didn't want to hear it. And also because of this overwhelming urge that some of them had to go to Ultima Thule, which is to say to the ends of the earth or the, or the most distant island, they found their way, of course, to the British Isles. And it, it ticked boxes for them, especially when they got to the most remote places, uh, you know, like, say, Cornwall and in the, in the southwest and then in the west of Ireland and in the, and in the western islands of Scotland. Some of them were finding the remoteness that they desired. It felt wild. They felt that they had reached the ends of the world. And if you go to some of the Western Isles of Scotland in the middle of winter, it really does feel at the end of the world. And as it turned out, it was desperately important that they established themselves there, although they couldn't have known it at the time that they did it, because Christianity elsewhere, or mainland Europe, almost got driven out. It was almost blown out like a candle flame. And it clung on on those remote places because it was out of reach of the forces that would have wanted to do away with it anyway. They were out of sight and out of mind, tucked away in these desolate islands out on the fringe. And they clung on there through the bad times. And then it was from there that they were almost like a seedbed from which the rest of the world could be replanted with Christianity. So if those, if those individuals hadn't found those wild places of Western Britain, Christianity might not have survived at all. And the world would be an utterly different place. Now, I'm not saying it would be worse or better, but if Christianity had been snuffed out, say in the 2nd or the 3rd or the 4th century AD, the world would have been a different place. But it clung on. And one of the figures... I would say the, the most you know, significant figure in that story is a character called Columba. Now, Columba is one of those people from the past that only needs one name. He like Beyonce, <laughs> Prince or Madonna, you know, Columba. He's just got this one name, such is his significance. And it's, it's, it's a nickname. It's actually a corruption of Column Kill, which means the dove of the church which is ironic, really, that he was given such a, a peaceful uh, nickname or praise name because he was definitely a violent figure to begin with, a kind of a religious fanatic, a zealot. Uh, he, was, he was from Ireland. He was from the O'Neill clan. And such had been the, the sort of violence and the ferocity and the fanaticism with which he had tried to convert the people around him. They had driven him away, him and his followers. They just leave. It probably means that he was high-born because if he'd just been some, you know, low-life commoner, somebody would probably just hit him on the head with a, with a, with a blunt object. But as it was he, was, he was given the chance to leave rather than be, you know, put to death. And so him and his followers left. 
And they, they crossed the Irish Sea and they arrived in the west of Scotland and somehow or other they managed to get in with the Gales or the or with the or with the or with the local population there. They managed to ingratiate themselves with the locals who would have been like everybody else, pagan. Yeah. But they got in there, you know, evidently be a charismatic figure. Maybe he had learned the lesson of Ireland and wasn't being quite so heavy-handed by the time he got to the west of Scotland. But it might also have been crucial that he could write. He could read and write. Literacy was always like the free gift that came with Christianity that a lot of people just couldn't resist. You know, it's like the free fountain pen you get. You sign up to an insurance policy. <laughs> Sometimes people do it just to get the pen. Well, there was something, whether or not you believed in what the, these Christian guys were saying, there was an attraction in, uh, in, in literacy, especially for big men, chiefs, kings, because they're all the same, those big men, in that they like the idea of the things they say being heard and listened to far and wide. I am the king, listen to me. They've all got that about them. Queens as well. It's just a, it's a character trait. And if you encounter somebody that can write down what you say so that it can be taken out to the people all over your territory and read out to them, then that's, a, that's attractive to kings because you can start laying down the law. You know, you can start making up the rules and sending them out and telling people that you're the king and this is how people have to behave. So because Columba arrived with this ability, that might have been the key that got him in. And in any event, in, uh, let's say, 563 AD, he's given him and his followers the island of Iona. Wow. They give him it. It's probably next to uninhabited. But, but my contention would always be that it was almost certainly, I would imagine, a, a special place. That people were, were aware of it and visited it. Maybe they didn't live there, maybe they didn't live there in big numbers, but they would have been struck just like people are in the 21st century by Iona. And so having listened to Columba, this character saying that he had this message from a god that, that guaranteed eternal life, they might have thought, well, a good place for a, a grand idea like that is this island. Go there. And surely when Columba arrived with these people, these few followers, however many they were, they probably struck by the place as well. In any event, that's where they established their first uh, Christian community on Iona. And it would have been a, a timber, wattle and daub church surrounded by a... They would have dug a circular ditch, maybe put up a wooden picket fence or something. Kind of defensive in the physical sense, but more to define a, a separate, set-aside, sacred space. Outside the circle is, you know, heathen. Inside the circle is is us. This is a, a special place. And there they, there they set about being Christian. And you have to imagine what these men were like. They had travelled from somewhere else... And, and, and within a, a generation or two, they had come out of the Mediterranean, they had come out of the south, you know, maybe even had come out of the Middle East, always heading north and west until they eventually come to, you know, the, the west of Scotland. And they're wearing woolen robes that they, that they make for themselves. Those descriptions that we have of them suggest that they shaved their heads from the, from the crown to the fo forward, just leaving it long at the back. Everything they, everything they made and ate, they had to make for themselves. 
you know, so they were building with beach pebbles and, and whatever timber they could scavenge and turf, and they were digging their, their circular ditches and they were creating fields and vegetable plots and they were hunting on the beach for seals and, and, and gathering fish. They were tough. You, you, know, have, you have to have in your mind's eye the idea that these were hard men, hard guys, utterly committed willing to put up with any kind of physical hardship and, and indignity because what mattered to them was to be at the ends of the earth with their God. You know, they're a powerful, fanatical presence. People talk about, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth as though these early church figures were kind of soft, turn the other cheek types. But I very much doubt it. And in any event, we misunderstand meek now. We think of meek meaning a bit soft, you know, a bit cowardly even. But meek is a word uh, that's, it comes out of the process of translating the Greek word praus. Now, praus is descriptive of what you end up with if you take a wild horse, a wild stallion, out of the herd, you capture it, and it's jittery and nervous and unpredictable, and you train it, you break it, and at the end of the process, you've created from this jittery chaos, you've created a war horse that obeys its rider's every command and every move and will, will charge down any foe, will even leap into the abyss for, for its rider. Once you've achieved that with what had been a wild horse, that horse is meek, prowse. So it, it's not about being weak or soft. It's about having had all your powerful potential channeled and commanded by, well, in this instance, God. Okay, so that's what these guys are like. They're submitted to the one God and they take the message and they go and live the hardest lives imaginable in tough and to some extent inhospitable places such as their commitment to come to, to understand that kind of early Christian movement these, these figures, you, you've got to think of hard men tough figures who can take anything, they're like the SAS of religious evangelists they're like the special forces, the toughest of the tough. And on Iona, there's a, if you go there now, there's a, I was going to say modern, there's a stone-built abbey, which is much more recent. There's nothing that was ever anything to do with Columba, built long, long after him. But nearby, there's a, a wee hill, a knoll, a rocky knoll, and it's always been called Toranaba in Gaelic, which means the hill of the abbot. Uh, and it was always a, that, that abbot being Columba. But mostly people thought that it was just a kind of a folk story. Just a, you know, just a folk myth, really. But in 1957, there was an archaeologist called Charles Thomas, who, amongst other investigations on Iona, he opened up a, a trench on Toranaba. Uh, and he found, along with other things, uh, some burnt hazel wood, charred hazel wood. And this was 1957, so this was before the time of radiocarbon dating. But he had the presence of mind to save the... He put them in a matchbox. And they, they ended up in his garage. And, and after he had died, 
more modern researchers knew that he had, he had this, so they went and they found the the little box of of charred hazel wood, and by then there was radiocarbon dating, and they submitted it, and the dates they got back showed that the, that hazel wood had been cut down from a living tree, some time between about five forty and six fifty A.D. Okay, now Columba is known to have died on Iona in five nine seven. So pretty much smack in the middle of that really quite precise age range. So it means that, right enough, on Toranaba, there was a little wooden cell, a little wooden hut. So it's perfectly legitimate to imagine that the folk myth was right all along, that Columba had created a little private place of worship for himself, somewhere he could go and contemplate and whatever, be alone with his thoughts and his God. And I find that astonishing. It's not particularly because of any kind of religious conviction, but the number of places that there are on the planet that you can pin down to a very small spot, that you can associate such a place with one of those single-named characters from history like Buddha or but Columba we know that he was there on that spot and I find there's something oh I don't know otherworldly about being able to go there and kneel down on it or put your hand on it and know that you're, you're occupying the same space in the universe the same tiny space in the vast universe that was once inhabited through the gossamer thin curtain of time it was inhabited by Columba he was there you know, as you walk about on that little knoll in that in that period of time, centuries ago, he's there. And you're both in the same space in the universe, just separated by the mystery of time. I find that profoundly affecting. And Iona is, is also one of those places that's associated with um, the great religious artworks that, that come out of our part of the world, like the Lindisfarne Gospels. Uh, the Book of Kells, for example. Now, obviously those are as Lindisfarne Gospels are associated with the island of Lindisfarne, which is the other holy isle off the east coast of England. Uh, and then there's Kells, which is in Ireland. But no one, after all this time, is really sure where those books were made. Those astonishing works of art. So, so as well as the words of the Gospels, there's also images you know, to inspire the illiterate as well as those who could read. And so some of them, some of those may have come off of the island of Iona. And in any event, it was a place that inspired so much, that kind of religious devotion, uh, that kind of faith, uh, that kind of artistic inspiration. You know, the art in the Lindisfarne Gospels, it's regarded by some art, art critics as some of the finest art created by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Another reason amongst many to go and visit Iona is just to go there and, I suppose, close your eyes and imagine that kind of faith, whether you have it or not. I find it inspirational to know that some people have it and that and that by dint of having that faith, they've been able to do the most amazing things, you know, put up with the most extreme physical hardship, create wondrous works of art. 
and that you know when you're on Iona that it's one of those little places on planet Earth or in the entire universe that's inspired that kind of elevated, transcendental behaviour. And it's just, it's part of what makes, you know, Iona this extraordinary place. seems like the perfect place for these astonishingly fierce-sounding devotees. It is. It, you know, it's it's not to be... I think it's tempting, or it's easy just by not thinking about it, to imagine that those early religious figures were just a bit, I don't know, a bit wishy-washy. <laughs> you know, sort of yeah. drift, drifting about a bit. You know, just being kind of um, unobtrusive and, and out of sight and just being quiet. And really, on the contrary their conviction and their commitment to their way of life. Whatever you think of what specifically inspired their way of life, just the fact that they were so inspired says something about the the human spirit, that that they believed what they believed so devoutly that this was what they chose to do with their belief. I I find amazing. Also, Traditionally, they used to say that uh, at one point there were 360 stone crosses on Iona, uh, specifically Celtic crosses. And that, that is those crosses which, as well as having the, the cross piece, there's a circle that links the upright with the, with the cross piece. And they're called the Celtic crosses. And they're quite different from, say, the Catholic crucifix that's so familiar you know, with the with the with Christ hanging, dying, on the on the cross. In the case of the, the the Celtic cross, it's quite different. I mean, for one thing, the circle it's only a stonemason's solution to a technical problem. If you make a wooden cross, then the the strength of the wood supports the cross piece. But if you do it out of stone, the stone arms will snap off under their own weight, and so to get round it. You carve in the circle, which gives the whole thing structural integrity. But but more significantly from a spiritual point of view, if you like, it's, it's an empty cross. So the message of the Celtic cross is that Christ has already come back to life. He's not, he's not hanging, dying in his agony. He's already, he's already up and about. He's back, is the message of the Celtic cross. And they used to say that there were 360 of these things on Iona. But with the coming of the Reformation in the, in the 16th century, all of that kind of iconography was, was smashed down. All of these things were destroyed. So there's only a handful now. And why they survived at all is anybody's guess. But the rest of them were smashed down and whatever, used for building material or thrown into the sea. But there's just a handful of them there. And also, uh, very close to where the, the abbey is now, there's an old cobbled road and it's called uh, the Street of the Dead. And it leads to an ancient burial ground. And in this ancient burial ground were buried, traditionally, they say, ancient Scottish kings. Even some Norwegian kings are in there. In fact, the only, the only person that we know for certain that's in there is um, a John Smith MP, the, the, the sometime, one-time leader of the Labour Party. His grave is there in this little cemetery at the end of the Road of the Dead.
the message, the message of of Iona, although we've been speaking a lot about Columba and, and his early Christian people, the power of Iona is above and beyond all of that. Even all of that powerful magic is is transcended by Iona itself. Because what it comes down to on Iona is the is the rock and the air and the water. It's elemental. It's elemental power. Those are the ingredients. Those are the only ingredients. And they are really what come together to make Iona this unique, powerful, restorative place. You just stand there quietly, empty your head as far as you can of your cares and woes, and just pay attention to the rock and the water and the sky above. And that's it. That's Iona. What's astonishing in lots of ways is a 21st century person, you're still having the same reaction to to this place that was has been happening back down through history thousands and thousands of years. Yes, and I think we shouldn't be surprised by it. It, it, there's too much I think sometimes people are made to feel almost embarrassed about feeling things spiritual you know of the of the spirit people are are embarrassed to express that kind of connection to a place which i think is just a shame because we are you know as human beings we are made of the place we are of this earth. We are made of the elements that are here on this ball of rock that's orbiting a spherical fire for some reason. We're confronted by existence, which actually, when you come to think about it, existing at all is strange. You know, Mervyn Peake said, to live at all is miracle enough. It's on his gravestone. And why take for granted how unlikely it is to be conscious on a ball of rock that's orbiting a ball of fire that is falling through forever, forever? Why on earth would you take that for granted? It's the oddest concept and it makes sense surely that there are certain places that because they're made of the rock and the and the water and the air of the planet that they're 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 assembled in such a way or they're just present in such a, a perfect form that if you allow yourself, you can stand in such a place, whether you're a scientist or a, or a devout believer or an atheist or an agnostic, if you're a human being, if you are a product and a citizen of planet Earth, there's nothing wrong with going to a certain place on Earth that's shaped 
more than by anything else, by, by nature, and just realising that you are from the earth in the same way that an, an apple is from a tree. You are, part, you are made by this place and it's worth being reminded of that. And it can be difficult with all the static and the white noise of the modern world. But if you go to somewhere like Iona, you can just be reminded that you are of this earth and that you belong and you're part of the big story. An imposing castle with the North Sea at its feet, heavy with history, a site where historical facts collide with the legends, folklore and myth that run the length of the British Isles, a place woven with tales of one of these Isles' most fabled characters, the hero ready and waiting to return when needed, King Arthur. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research was undertaken by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is the responsibility of Catherine and Trudy. Post-production was at Althorpe Studios. Graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.